You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 629 for October 11th, 2023. On this episode, violinist Alin Hamzi. Members of the Jazz Session also get this I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show, on which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. Alin talks about wildlife videography. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll also get early access to every episode occasional behind-the-scenes info, other bonus shows, and for every episode, I choose one Patreon supporter to name as the sponsor of that episode. This one was brought to you by Ken Smoker. Thanks a lot, Ken. Alin Hamzi's new album with her band Etoile Magique is called Eclipse. Here's the opening track. Hamzi, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thank you so much for having me today, Jason. It is my absolute pleasure. Uh, we're here to talk about the new record, Eclipse, and I've really, really enjoyed listening to this record. And the word that kept coming to my my mind over and over again was atmospheric, which maybe is a bit of a cliche word to use, but this record feels so much like a vision, like someone who had a real idea for the sound world and the compositional style and really took pains to realize that. So I'd love to hear something about the the kind of origin story, what what you were picturing and hearing as you were developing this this album. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, because I think my approach with many of my projects is always kind of like a little bit of a conceptual thing. And in this case, I was thinking about, you know, really like, okay, maybe there's a solar system and maybe each planet has its own mood or its own color or, or its own, just, you know, its own vibe. And, and each of those p- planets could be like one of the pieces on the album within this bigger universe. It's so funny that you say that because I decided not to say this in case it didn't come out right, but what I was going to open with was 
what I actually thought while listening to this album is, you know, if you watch sci-fi movies or TV shows and they feature music from the future or from another world, it never sounds like it's from another world. Like the Cantina band in Star Wars, just, I mean, they could easily have been playing in the 1950s in, you know, any European city, you know, that kind of thing. But this album, like if, if I was watching a Star Trek episode and this album started playing and I was in the 25th century or something, I would say, yeah, totally. That that absolutely makes sense. So I'm so glad you said the thing about the planets all with their own music, because I can absolutely imagine that like we're taking a tour of a totally other world on this record. Well, that's so interesting that you say that because specifically with the piece, Aliens Are Pieces of Wind, that's kind of the exact thing I was thinking about. like. Aliens are depicted in such a weird and and like definitive way in media and in movies. But like we have zero concept for for what that actually could be, right? So to me, I'm like, well, okay, maybe the music isn't as like experimental in that particular piece, although it does kind of get there. The idea behind it is very much this like, you know, what what are aliens? And like literally they can be anything. Yeah, our chances of accurately conceiving what they are seem fairly small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I want to go back to to the composition of the record. And were you were you writing pieces toward the goal of an album? Like these these feel like they hang together to me, but I know that often albums are just, you know, a certain amount of time has elapsed and I have enough pieces and let's make a record. So I'm I'm curious because I'll believe either answer, even though this feels like a very holistic project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the pieces are actually quite old, like from when I was in college, which is over 10 years ago now. So, but essentially, I reworked a lot of them a lot with Michael Davidson, the vibraphone player, uh, to kind of not necessarily with the goal of having them all be part of this universe at first. But I think the titling of them was maybe what what did bring them together. So just thinking about some of those titles. And I did have like aliens are pieces of wind is one actually that I titled right from the start without knowing I'd ever have this album. So it just fit perfectly in the theme of it all. Did you write these pieces with the knowledge of who would be performing them or at least the makeup of the ensemble? Were you writing for the players or did you fit that in after the fact? Mostly, yes. So a few of the pieces that I uh, that were written, like I said, like a, a long time ago, I sure. didn't actually know some of the people that are <laughs> playing in the band. But as things kind of, as time went by and I, I did get to meet them 
and play with them, then yes, it definitely took on a much more directed approach where I was like, yes, this person is going to play guitar in my band because I've written these parts for that person. So yes. Before we go any farther, will you take us through the band on this record? Yeah. So we have uh, Tom Gill on guitar. He's such an amazing musician, not often found in the jazz realm, but he works a lot with this amazing ensemble here called the Queer Songbook Orchestra, highlighting queer musicians and especially Canadian ones, but just an amazing guitar player. We have Dan Forte on the bass and Dan and Tom play together in a band called Bernice, if, if anybody's interested in checking them out. So they they have this really long-standing relationship. And Michael Davidson plays the vibraphone. And I think to me, like Michael is one of the, I mean, I'm just going to say it. He's like the best vibraphone player in Canada for sure, let alone North, North America. But he's kind of like this hidden gem. <laughs> I like to call him because he's not overtly public, shall we say, about, you know, what he does. But he recently did an album with Joe Chambers on Blue Note. And he's just an amazing musician and composer and arranger. And you'll probably hear a little bit of, of his music from this album, Circa Herself and Starring Space. And then I have Marito Marx on drums. And he's originally from Portugal. So he's bringing in like a super diverse approach to playing the drums with this band you know, even like a little bit of Brazilian and African influences. And he connected me to the accordion player who's the guest on the album. His name is Joao Frage. Again, just like this virtuosic, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe Joao, but he's just amazing on the accordion. And then I have guest vocalist Felicity Williams singing on the last track. And she's just got this vibe that just fits so well with with us so it was a no-brainer to, to have her sing with us i'm so curious about the arranging of this record so now knowing that so first of all you, obviously some of the pieces came from back in your past as you said but as you began to start thinking about them conceptually as a record and you had a series of players picked out there's also it's just such a fascinating sonic landscape in this record so maybe this is another one of those chicken and egg questions, but did that, did the use of all these interesting textures and instrumentations, did that come because of the people that you met? Did you seek out people who could play the things you'd already thought of? I'm curious about that. Yeah, I think a, a bit of both because we took a week at a studio outside of the city. So I'm in Toronto right now and we, we booked a, a studio outside of the city and stayed there for a whole week. And so we had access to different synthesizers and different electric keyboards, as well as the theremin and a grand piano. And then, of course, all of our instruments, including the vibraphone. So I think it was a product of being in the studio and being able to explore those different sound palettes. And there's one piece that that employs bowed vibes. And I always had this idea that I really wanted something to have bowed vibes on it. So Rose du Ciel has a, like a bowed vibe kind of pad like the whole way through. And I think it just elevates that texture and atmosphere. 
And it just kind of, I don't know, it's like a soothing, a really soothing kind of tone. And it's hardly noticeable because it's really in the background, but there's something there. And it's, yeah, it's really magical to me. I love how casually you listed the instruments available to you and just included theremin. Like, yeah, all yeah. Doesn't every studio just have a theremin in in there that you use? <laughs> oh yeah, no. I as soon as I saw the theremin at the studio, I didn't know in advance that it, that there was one there. But as soon as I saw it, I think for the first four or five nights, I was like, "This is gonna have to go on the album." Like, how could we not? <laughs> like, what a special thing to have and. It so happens that the engineer who also co-produced the album, David Travers Smith, knows how to play the theremin. So he kind of taught me a little bit about, you know, how to move my hands. And it was really like a natural, it's it's kind of an intuitive instrument to play, I think, coming from the violin, because you really have to use your ears and 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 the pitch is just, I mean, you have to use your ears and pitch with any instrument you play, but there's something kind of similar to it. So I just laid down a few takes of the theremin and picked one and we kind of, we, we did enhance it a little bit. Like we put it through some processing just to give it a little bit more of an edge. And, and so, yeah, but I'm so thrilled that we, we had access to that instrument because it's kind of, it, it takes center stage on, on that one piece we use it on, which is Mizartham. I always just like to assume that it's possible someone's listening who doesn't know what particular things are. So could you just give a few sentence description of what a theremin is for people who hear us talk about it and don't understand what it is? Yeah. So a theremin is, I think, originally made by Moog Audio. And basically it's weight, like, uh, how to explain, I guess, electric waves that you manipulate using your hands. So you don't actually have like a physical thing you're moving I mean, you're moving your hands between these two like antennas and one controls the pitch and the other one controls the volume and the and the sus- sustain. And if you've ever watched, you know, an old sci-fi movie or an Alfred Hitchcock movie where there's the, you know, kind of sound that nine times out of 10, that's that's a theremin or something pretending to be one. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> You can support what I do by becoming a member for $5 a month. I got a great email a few days ago from a listener. Uh, I did not ask him for permission to use his full name, so I'll just say his name is Paul. Uh, He's a member of the Jazz Session, and he pointed out that 
one thing that has changed a lot over the years of podcast listening, especially the almost two decades that this show has existed, is that the quality of the show itself, the way it sounds and the way the guests sound and so on and so forth, has greatly increased over all of those years. And that the show uh, does not collect and sell user data. It doesn't have ads. Uh, Instead, what it does is make high-quality interviews with jazz musicians, shares their stories. And for folks like possibly you who consider this a high-value experience, that's a good reason to support the show. I give a lot of other reasons when I talk about this, but as as Paul rightly points out, there are a number of reasons to become a member, but most of all, you're just supporting something of value and you want to help it keep going. So if you find Paul's argument persuasive, which of course I do, but I'm biased in his favor, uh, then I encourage you to kick in your five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thank you and thanks to Paul. I write press releases and artist bios and liner notes for musicians. If you are interested in that work, you can go to cranewrites.com and see my work there and then get in touch. Now back to the episode. So you mentioned, which is a thing that I I had wanted to ask you about, you mentioned spending an entire week at the studio, which enough people have talked about recording albums on this show that I think most folks now at this point expect, yeah, we went in, we did the first eight tracks before lunch, we went and got shawarma, we came back and we did eight more tracks, (laughs) then it was mastered and that was the record. So to hear someone who got to spend a week, like that's like... That's like Beatles era recording, right? Like that's like David Bowie recording. So just tell me about that. Was that a plan you'd always had? Like when it comes time, I'm going to, I'm going to take my time. Yes. I, I definitely wanted to do something along those lines since the moment I knew I wanted to record. And part of it is because I love spending time with the musicians that are in the band. But then because of the pandemic, it made it easier for me to actually implement that plan. So we created our own little bubble and went to the studio. And it's, I don't know if you're familiar with the Tragically Hip. It's a, they're kind of, yeah, they're like a a big I'm an indie rock DJ, so I'm very familiar with the Tragically Hip. There you go. So we were at the Tragically Hip's summer escape home where they have this amazing studio. They don't really use it anymore, obviously, because Gord has passed, but the the guy who takes care of the studio his name is Niles Spencer he he basically lives there and he will welcome all the bands that come in and yeah you can stay there for one two weeks however long you want and just 
the way we did it is we went every day, like we had kind of a schedule where we'd, you know, not wake up too early, but kind of start recording around 11 and then take a lunch break and then record some more and take a dinner break. And then usually we'd play games in the evening, but it was a really, really nice way to kind of really dig into the music in a way that I've never, you know, I've never experienced that process before. As you said, usually it's like you're in the studio for one, maybe two days, laying down eight, nine tracks, and that's it. And I just really wanted a little bit more like for us to really dig in and and figure some things out together. You mentioned finding the theremin, but my understanding is that you you also use the studio itself as an instrument to enhance and modify and manipulate some of the things that we hear on the record, right? Yeah, definitely. So just using, I mean, David Travers Smith, my my co-producer and engineer, he's just a whiz in the studio. And, you know, we would, we spent a lot of time actually figuring out sounds and just atmospheres and textures and, and even just like the violin tone. Like I, I was really specific about the tone that I wanted for my instrument. So using the studio in that regard was such an amazing experience. And yeah, like I, I just, I'm so excited to go do it again. <laughs> you know, like it's it's just really a fun thing to do. I want to step away from the record just for a minute to, because this is your first time on the show and there are probably some people who are meeting you in the course of this interview. And I wanted, if I could, I don't normally go this far back, but I wanted to go back to your dad because he has a job that has some relevance to your current pursuits. But I could imagine that your dad's, which we'll we'll define what his job is in just a second, but I could imagine that your dad's job could have had the opposite effect as well. Many kids, you know, kind of establish their own identity by not doing anything related to what their parents do. So will you tell people what your dad does? And then I'm curious how that impacted you. So my dad taught jazz studies at Concordia University in Montreal for many, many years. And fun fact, he was actually the first person to to get a master's in jazz in Canada at McGill. Very cool. Because, yeah, because he dodged the Vietnam War and he's originally from Cleveland. And I think basically, you know, his family was concerned that he was and he was obviously very concerned. And I think his dad was just like, here's 50 bucks, like get out of here. And it just coincided with the timing of him wanting to do his master's. So yes, so jazz has always been a very big part of my childhood and my life in the sense that, you know, basically, I don't think we'd listen to anything other than jazz and classical music in my house. Well, until I discovered like Britney Spears through some friends of mine. So being exposed to um, a lot of jazz and classical music and my parents being very strong in you know exposing my sister and I to to art music I suppose you could call it they really wanted us both to play violin and maybe a funny choice I don't know for jazz because I think the idea is that we would both pursue classical music but eventually I just had enough of the competitive aspect of classical music even though I love my teachers and I I loved the essentially the the education I, I did receive at a certain point, I couldn't see a way forward without doing all these auditions and these competitions. And I, that just really wasn't where I found joy in, in making music. So 
I started improvising with my dad. He's actually a tuba player, but he also is self-taught pianist. So we would just jam him on the piano and me on the violin. And he would teach me things like, I don't know, like a lot of Ellington heads. And and that's kind of where I discovered that, hey, I can like improvise too. It doesn't matter what instrument you play. You can do it on the violin as easily as you can do it on the sax or clarinet or trumpet. So that's kind of how I discovered that I could do it on the violin. Since you play an instrument that has far fewer well-known names than, say, if you were a saxophone player or a pianist, I'm curious, did, did that make it easier or harder for you to create your own path forward in the music? In one sense, easier because there's less in the way of like defining my own sound. And I think I really do see that now, you know, after playing professionally for for a little more than 10 years now, I find it a lot easier. But previously, I think like right out of school, you know, I was often approached and told that I sound a lot like Stefan Grappelli or, you know, which is, I'm fine with that. I mean, I love that music, but it's like, so not what I think I sound like. And it's so not what I've spent time listening. I mean, I spent a lot of time listening to Django Reinhardt, but like, in terms of Stefan Grappelli, it's not someone that I like listened to a ton and like lifted or anything like that. Like it was always trumpet players and sax players and pianists. So yeah, I, I just think it's interesting how people can, they just see the violin or they hear the violin and they automatically associate it with the most famous jazz violinist. So yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Which is odd. Cause I mean, if anyone listening to, well, not anyone, obviously, but I would think you would sound a lot more at home, like in Mahavishnu than you would sound in the hot club, you know, you know <laughs> something like that. I mean, <laughs> your, your playing is, is not Grappelli like to me. And I love, I'm a massive fan of Django and Stefan, but yeah, that, that is yeah. not what I thought of when I listened to your playing at all. Yeah. Well, I think especially with this album, I've, it's not that I've rejected that part of the instrument, but I think definitely I, I teach Django Reinhardt ensemble at, at the college I went to. And I always tell my students, like, you know, I want you to keep in mind, like, if Django and Grappelli were still alive now, like, what do you think? Like, do you think that they would st- sound the same? I mean, especially taking someone like Django, who really evolved throughout his like composition style and his improvising style. What do you think that would be like now? And like, how can we actually push that outside of of what we're so familiar with? Because I don't know if he would love that we just play like from a certain period of his life and from a certain period of his compositions. Like, I don't know, but maybe he would. I I have no idea.
You know, it's kind of an interesting dovetail into the, there's all the, all the music on this album is by you, except there's one cover. And that's, that's the fact that I work in rock music during the day coming out. Cause we usually don't call them covers in the jazz world, but that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, there's actually, there's two pieces written by Michael Davidson. And oh, then right. A cover. Very yeah. fair. Yes. Sorry. I should have yeah. said it's all original music except for yeah. one cover. Thank you for that correction. And the one thing that's on here that neither of you wrote is one of my all-time favorite pieces, and I think maybe my absolute favorite Charlie Parker piece, which is Segment. And that is, it's such an interesting study in what you were just talking about, because in many ways, this version of Segment is, what if this tune had the same melody and changes, but it had been written, you know, on a spaceship in the year 2500 or whatever, like taking it out of the amber that we have so much of this music preserved in and moving it to the to the modern day. So I'd love to hear anything you want to say about choosing to play that tune and arranging yeah, I think so. That was also arranged by by Michael Michael Davidson, and he had me play it on a gig once. And I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I just fell in love with like that opening chord sequence and and just how the the melody fit with that, and just the tempo, and like it's just like a reimagined version of like you said, like it's just this this whole other world, but it's still segment. And I was like, "We have to put it, this." Actually was a piece that we didn't record at at our weekend or not our weekend at our week away, but actually we recorded it when we came back because I was like, I really think we need this tune on the album. And I like forgot about it when we were (laughs) recording at the studio. And so I'm so glad we, we were able to accommodate that. And, and Michael's treatment on it is just so, I don't know. It's like otherworldly and just so like captivating and it's also important for me to like, you know, have a little homage to someone like Charlie Parker, who, I mean, if you, if you go to school, even if you don't go to school for jazz, like he's just someone you're going to study. So just really interesting to have this, this new kind of view into his music. So you mentioned that you teach, and I'm curious, uh, do you teach any other violinists who are looking to get into improvised music? And if so, is there anything that you try to impart to them that maybe you didn't encounter in your own education or that you did and want to pass on? Absolutely. Yeah, I love teaching other violinists, especially at the college level, where, you know, they're really, they're motivated and they're focused and they want to learn different things. and so far I've had really open-minded students. And for me, that's like the first step if you want to become a musician of any kind. 
not just in jazz and being able to to just kind of guide them and i really take them on as like mentees like i i i like mentoring the students i get and because i only have a very small studio because violin isn't that you know popular i suppose within the jazz realm i i take them under my i don't even know how to say like under my wing i guess for kind of a cliche way to say it but and i just try to get them to go out and see as much music as possible to get them exposed to things they like things they might not like and then we we discuss that in great detail and i think that's you know a, such a big part of learning how to improvise and how to craft your your ideas and your music but also compositionally if they're interested in, in composing like you know what did you like about this band or this piece or you know and, and just kind of having these really in-depth discussions Say more, if you would, about why you think open-mindedness is such an important quality in a musician. I think open-mindedness just allows musicians to to dig into things in a way that might make them realize that they are comfortable or uncomfortable with things. And I think, you know, sitting in discomfort for a little while oftentimes we end up being comfortable. So I think for me, it's just so important to be like able to put yourself out there and be uncomfortable for a second and take that experience back because you're often going to remember those uncomfortable situations a little more than the comfortable situations, right? So taking that back and kind of transforming it into your art or into your music I think can yield some really interesting results. I know you do a lot to highlight women in improvised music. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So in actually the way that this band started was through an initiative that I started where I won a little bit of money to put on an event called Bitches Brew. And it's actually a series that a friend of mine in Scotland started. Her name is Emma Smith. She's a great bass player. So I had her come down to Toronto and, and we did a set together as a duo. And then I had the amazing Ocon Cuban duo do a thing and this phenomenal flute player Anne Fung. And then I was like, oh, I guess I have to play too. And I so that kind of when I was like, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to write some music and I'm going to right for these people and it was tom gill on guitar and dan forte on the bass and then michael was supposed to play vibes but he was out of town so i had a piano player come in and play the the vibe the vibraphone parts and that's kind of actually where the band etoile magic started but it was all in service of highlighting women band leaders within improvised music and kind of showcasing the range of talent and the range of styles musical styles in which people can improvise in and and just continuing to to kind of elevate uh, women in in improvising uh, through different initiatives that I do and and host concert series and just making sure that there's equal place for people to express their their artistic voices. In that answer, you mentioned that the name of your band is Etoile Magique, which my high school French tells me means magic star. I think is that right? And will you tell me why the band is called that? If it if there's a reason besides it sounds cool, which it definitely does. 
basically the reason is because it sounds cool but yeah but after i named it i was like i wonder if this is a thing (laughs) so i googled it and it is a thing it's like this mathematical equation i can't I, i don't know if i'll be able to do it justice right now but basically there's like this formula that if you assign a number to each of the sides, like each of the points of the star. So a one, two, three, so like a five edge star. Right, right, right. Yeah, thank you. Pointed, five pointed star. And then it always is the sum, like it always equals the sum of of that number somehow. So so I thought that was kind of cool too, because it, it, I don't know, it just brings brings it into this other dimension of of this whole other equation. (laughs) I don't know that much about, but I think is cool. Hey, pals, this is Jason. I'm inserting this here after the fact. Normally, this is the part in the interview where I would have said to Alin, the name of the album by uh, Alin Holmes's Etoile Magique is Eclipse. It's been such a joy to have you here. Thanks so much for being on the show. And presumably she would say something like, thank you for having me. But apparently, for what I think is the first time in the life of the jazz session, I never said goodbye or thanked her for being here. So I'm sorry, Alin. And thanks. Thanks to my guest, Alin Homsey. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. You can message me for more info about Sarah. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram and TikTok at The Jazz Session. You can take a second, if you would, to rate and review The Jazz Session wherever you listen, including Apple Podcasts. It really helps me reach new folks. I have another podcast called A Brief Chat. It's also an interview show, usually, but uh, no specific topic. If you want to listen to it, you can look up A Brief Chat wherever you get your podcasts or go to abriefchat.com. You can keep up to date on my shows, my poetry, and more by subscribing to my newsletter. If you go to thejazzsession.com, you'll see the newsletter link along the top and just click on that. If you value what you just heard, become a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.